One thing we know about life is that it isn't always easy. Life itself is an amazing gift, a gift from God. And it's full of just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. God himself is the author of life. He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. And what great assurance we have, right, in knowing that our lives are in God's hands, that he knows, God knows the exact numbers of our days. And what great assurance we have in knowing that new and everlasting life is likewise graciously given and forever secured by God, that those who trust in Christ are fully assured of eternal life, which is a gift so amazing that we cannot even comprehend its fullness. But knowing Christ and life with God does not exempt us from trials and heartaches in this world. Troubles of many kinds are part and parcel to life in this world. And on one hand, we expect it, right? We, we expect to face trouble, yet when trouble comes, doesn't it always seem so unexpected? That's what's going on here in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. The disciples are troubled. And though they knew trouble was coming, this wasn't the first time they heard this. Jesus had forewarned them uh, many times. It still catches them by surprise, and they're having to process in real time. And we follow the narrative. Jesus has gathered those uh, close friends one last time to share with them some lasting truths before he leaves them for the cross and ultimately for his return to heaven. And chapters 13 through 17 occur, remember, within a span of just a few hours, and Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's coming next. Known as the Upper Room Discourse, this portion of John's Gospel is all about love. The deep, deep love of Christ for them and by extension for us. Having loved his own who were in the world, reads chapter 13, verse 1, he loved them to the very end. We might say that chapter 13, our last chapter, is about how love serves. We remember how Jesus washed their feet. Chapter 15, the next chapter, is how love abides. We have this picture of the vine and the branch. Chapter 16, how love provides. 
and perseveres. Chapter 17, how love prays. And here in chapter 14, we might say this is all about how love comforts. Of course, the entire discourse is meant for their comfort, but but here in chapter 14 specifically, we find Jesus comforting his friends' troubled hearts. Already he's promised them a, a home in heaven, a place with God in God's house that he himself will prepare. He has promised to come back for them and take them and be with them forever. And in the meantime, He's promised them fruitful ministry on earth uh, that they would continue in His work and do even greater works as ministers of the gospel. He has promised to hear when they pray and do for them whatever they ask in His name to the glory of God. He has promised, as we saw last week, He has promised them the Holy Spirit of God who will come to them and indwell them and empower each one of them. And all of this is meant for their comfort. Each and every one of these promises. And and today in verse 27, our focus, he promises peace. The words of verse 27, I think, are among the most comforting words you will ever hear. I don't think we can overstate the immense value of these words. Just, though just one verse, the truth contained in verse 27 literally affects every aspect of your life. No matter what you're facing today, no matter what you're facing today, however difficult However unexpected, this single verse can make all the difference. So let's read it together. Just one verse. John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus is speaking to them and Now to us, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for each and every person here today. And I want to thank you for your presence in our lives. I want to thank you for your complete knowledge of every detail of our lives. I want to thank you for your deep, deep love, divine love. I want to thank you for your many promises to us concerning our lives. I want to thank you that 
Each one of your promises, every promise of God, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So I pray that you will hear, help us to hear Jesus today. Even as he speaks these words, his words, to us again this morning. And that you will take the truth of these words and use it to minister to every single person present here. That they would be troubled no more. We ask it through Christ. Amen. Initially, I planned to cover the, the plan all the way up until Friday, really. The plan was to cover verse 27 through verse 31. But I just couldn't get past 30, or 27. And so we may take it in two parts, 27 today and the rest. I do think they're related. I think the point of, that Jesus is making here is that because the promise of Christ, or, or because the promise of peace is realized in the person of Christ, because the promise of peace is realized in the purpose, because the promise of peace is realized in the person of Christ, our troubled hearts are free to rest in him. Jesus offers us something of great worth here, the gift of peace. And as we take this verse phrase by phrase, I, I think we find four separate components to consider. They are the, 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 the legacy of peace, the quality of peace, the distinction between peace, and the call to peace. The legacy of peace, the, the quality of peace, the distinction between peace and the call to peace. Peace I leave you, Jesus said. On that final night before his crucifixion and death is an astounding promise. An astounding promise when we consider the circumstances under which he spoke. In just a matter of hours, he would be betrayed, arrested, beaten, interrogated, tried, accused, falsely convicted by the Jews as a blasphemer. He'd be taken to the Romans, tried a second time, again beaten, this time much more severely, whipped, scourged, his flesh torn to shreds, 
Though found completely innocent, completely innocent, even by Pontius Pilate, the ruling authority at that time, he was still condemned to die while a known and hardened criminal, Barabbas, was set free. It's just a poignant picture of the gospel. How... Jesus and his substitutionary death for us on our behalf has set us free from our guilt and the judgment we deserve. We are the Barabbas. And this would all happen in a matter of hours, and Jesus knew it. He knew every bit of it, and yet he was at peace. He's at perfect peace. And he leaves peace for his friends and followers. He's he's leaving for the cross, but he's leaving them with peace. He's leaving, but his peace will still stay behind. He knows they're troubled. He knows their lives are about to be turned upside down, that they're about to face something unlike anything they've faced before. He knows what's coming, what's ahead of them, and he knows what they'll need to get through. They'll need peace. They'll need this divine peace, not some humanistic... (laughs) I want to say mumbo-jumbo that only masks the problem. This deeper issue, you see, when it seems that everything is crashing down around you, just as it seemed for them, what you need most in those moments is not a quick fix that's centered around human opinions. You don't need a quick fix of your own. You need deep, abiding peace from God. And by leaving them these words, he's, he, he left them a legacy of peace that is as much for us today as it was for them then. And then we consider the high quality of Christ's peace. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. This isn't just any peace. It's his peace. It's the peace of Christ. It's the very same peace that resided within his own heart and mind and soul. It is this divine peace that steeled his nerves as he faced the horrors of the cross. It's this peace that enabled him to endure the many rigors of his earthly ministry throughout the totality of his ministry. It's this peace that could not be shaken. Though he was under constant scrutiny and criticism, it's this peace that carried him through the endless demands of the fickle crowds. It's this divine peace. It's this peace that ran so deep, that so controlled and consumed him that he could actually sleep in a boat that was being tossed in a storm. It's a peace. 
You see, this piece isn't about what's this, this piece isn't about what's happening outside of you, but what's going on inside of you. So whatever you're facing, whatever life storms you encounter, you can know this peace while the waters on the outside of your life may be roaring and raging. Jesus offers peace so that your heart can be as still as a quiet pond. This picture is one of complete health and, and multifaceted wholeness. It is vertical, meaning peace with God. Horizontal, meaning peace with others. And personal, meaning peace within. You cannot have peace within. Please hear this. You cannot have peace within unless you are at peace with God and others. Because those relationships, both vertical and horizontal, inevitably affect everything you do and are. So it's no coincidence, I, I think, that Jesus offers this peace while on his way to the cross. For it was on the cross where Jesus made peace with God possible. He took that which was standing between us and our Maker. And he took upon himself our sins and, and offered himself in payment for our debt. Because the wages of sin is death, Jesus died in our place and thereby canceled the record of debt that stood against us. By the grace of God, it was nailed to the cross, we're told. The, the scripture says this debt, this record of debt was nailed to the cross so that when Christ died and rose again, we, by trusting Christ, would be made alive together with him, having had all our sins forgiven entirely. I've shared this before. If you've ever been in debt, I assume most of you have, financial debt, you know that, um, that, that just, just tremendous relief that comes when that debt is paid. Now multiply that by an infinite measure. That's the relief that Jesus brings spiritually. The cross brought reconciliation with God, but also with each other. You see, if Jesus has forgiven all my sins in this way, if, if he's forgiven all my sins in this way, how can I reasonably hold any sin against you? And if he's forgiven all your debt, if he's forgiven all your debt, if he's taken your record of debt and he's nailed it to the cross, how can I reasonably try to exact payment from you? And if, he, and if we are both, you and me, us together, if we're being drawn by grace closer to God, aren't we also being drawn closer to each other as a result? And so if he has forgiven us both, 
having removed the wall that once stood between us in our sinfulness, who are we to reconstruct the wall? And so the peace that Jesus gives is both vertical and horizontal, and being at peace with God and others invariably brings peace within. Even when external troubles threaten you, you can lean upon Christ, who is your peace. His peace is of such a high quality. It depends not on the absence of trouble, but rather ministers to you even in your troubles. It's complete peace, and it's Christ's gift to you. And third, notice Christ's distinction between peace. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus contrasts his peace with worldly peace. The world can only offer its generic version of peace, which really isn't peace at all. It's really more like momentary pleasure that depends entirely on our outward circumstances. So when things at work or school go as planned, you feel better. When things at home go as planned, you feel better. When the bills are paid and you have maybe a little left over, you feel better. When the doctor gives you good news, you feel better. But as soon as a relationship turns sour, or your car breaks down, or in our case, your air conditioner goes out, or your health gives way, or your boss promotes someone else, or your son and daughter go their own way, or an aging parent needs more regular care, or your best friend lets you down, whatever it is, in those moments, the world can only wish you peace, but it cannot assure you of it. It certainly cannot promise peace. It can suggest change. It does, right? It can suggest change, but, but that's the point. Worldly peace is like superficial happiness that depends on changing the externals of your situation because it simply cannot reach the need within. And the world typically gives wanting something in return. Typically gives wanting something in return with strings attached. It's, it's tit for tat. It's you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. In the end, the world has its own interests in mind because all it knows is self-preservation. So the bank will happily lend you money to purchase a new car or a new home 
or to cover an unexpected expense, but only if you qualify and only if you meet certain conditions because ultimately the bank wants its money back plus interest. But Christ's peace is unlike, utterly unlike the world's. The peace that Jesus gives and leaves is not based on your money or your level of trustworthiness or your ability to qualify or provide collateral. It's not based on the externals of your circumstance. It's not useful to you only as long as life goes according to plan. It's not conditional in these ways because it rests upon God and His grace not your merit or the merits of your situation. It rests upon Jesus Christ himself who freely gave himself for you in life and in death and he lives victorious today and reigns over all things. You don't have to earn Christ's peace. You don't have to manipulate the variables in your life to secure Christ's peace. It is a gift of grace. And isn't that what makes a gift a gift? Grace. Jesus gives in a way the world cannot duplicate because the world simply doesn't know grace. The world needs grace just like we do. So it cannot give what it does not have. But Jesus, from the very fullness of God, bestows upon us the grace of God. And His divine grace does not just rearrange the outward circumstances of our lives. It penetrates deep to restore peace within. All of this leads, lastly, to Christ's call to peace. Let not... What did he say? Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So there's a fundamental difference between Christ's peace and the world's. And in essence... And then there's a fundamental difference in the way that Jesus gives and the way the world gives. And so essentially there are two paths from which to choose. Will you walk the worldly path? Or will you walk with Jesus? Took some time this week. just to thumb through the church directory. I read each of your names while recalling some of your stories and some of your current situations. And as I did, what became very, very, very clear to me very quickly is that there's not a single one of us in this room who could not benefit from Christ's peace. Truth be told, 
We all have reason to worry if we allowed ourselves to. Every one of us. None of us here this morning is immune to worry or fear or anxiety or feeling down or depressed or empty or forgotten or alone or isolated or uncared for. On and on we go. We're not immune to that. Whether you're a member of this church or not, I, I, I know, I know there is something in your life today that could easily lead to a troubled heart if you let it. But Jesus is calling you to something much more. Something beyond your worldly cares. He invites you to take hold of his divine peace. And and that's, that's the point, that it's not yours until you take hold of it. And the way to grab hold of Christ's peace is to grab hold of Christ himself by faith. Those disciples were anxious and fretful, and Jesus comforts them by calling them to faith. Remember, that's exactly, exactly how this chapter began back in verse 1 when Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, they had been with him for years. They'd been called by him. They were taught by him. They observed him and how he modeled a perfect life. They saw him minister to others. He ministered to them, and and they ministered with him. They walked together and basically lived life together with Jesus. So hear this. If they needed peace, so do we. If they needed faith as close to Christ as they were at that time, don't we? Now, already they believe. That's why they were with him in the first place, but still he called them to continue believing. You see, faith in Christ is not a one-time proposition. It's a lifetime of trusting Jesus. These disciples were just like us. From impetuous Peter to doubting Thomas to the calculating uh, tax collector Matthew to accommodating Andrew to the strong-willed brothers James and John the sons of thunder I imagine some were more extroverted, others more introverted. I imagine some were more just generally disposed. They were more optimistic. Others were more pessimistic. I would imagine there were all sorts of temperaments within the group, dispositions. But whatever their disposition, they were a mixed bag just like us, learning how to live by faith. 
They were learning to believe Jesus on a day-to-day basis, regardless of their daily circumstance. But worry, worry at its, at its root is unbelief. Fear at its root is unbelief. Anxiety at its root is unbelief. And so Jesus wanted them to trust him and receive his peace. And he wants us to do the same. So we have the, in this verse, we have the the legacy of peace, the quality of peace, the distinction between peace and the call to peace. And I just want to close with a story. It's a true story about a man who experienced firsthand the promise of peace that Jesus makes here. He was a successful businessman in Chicago, wildly successful. He was a godly man. He was an attorney by trade. And he had a thriving practice, and he could basically afford anything he wanted in terms of material things. From one perspective, the world's perspective maybe, you might assume that he had not a care in the world, at least not anything that money couldn't mask. But in the great Chicago fire of 1871, he essentially lost it all, as many people did. That fire ravaged the city of Chicago and left behind only empty ashes, charred dreams, and devastated lives. The man had a beautiful wife, Anna, and together they had four beautiful daughters. And it's interesting because I have a beautiful wife, and I have four beautiful daughters. And by 1873, just two years later, he decided to put his family on a train to New York where they would find a ship headed for Europe. And in 1874, the next year, his wife and daughters indeed boarded a French steamer returning home from America. His plan was to get them away from the devastation in Chicago to give his family some needed time to recover, he would simply tidy up a few things and then meet them in Europe afterwards. At least that was the plan. However, somewhere on the Atlantic, the steamer collided with another sailing vessel and the damage was considerable and the boat was sinking fast. Anna gathered her four girls Ages 11, 9, 7, and 2. 
She held them close. She prayed with them. She tried to comfort them as best she could. Knowing their chances were slim, she prayed for their salvation. And within 12 minutes, the boat was underwater. A sailor rowing over the area where the ship went down rescued Anna. She was floating all by herself. All four girls had drowned. Ten days later, she reached Cardiff, a port city on the southern coast of Wales, and she telegrammed quickly her husband, who by this time knew of the shipwreck, but hadn't heard anything regarding the survivors. Anna's message contained just two aching words. Saved. Alone. Upon receiving this heart-wrenching news, the man likewise boarded a boat for the UK to meet his grief-stricken wife as quickly as he could. And as the story goes, when the boat came upon that same area in the Atlantic where his wife and daughters went down, Horatio Spafford famously penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul though Satan should buffet though trials should come let this let it control let it control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. With my soul, with my soul, it is well. It is well with my soul. Lost his home business, essentially all his material wealth, but far, far, far more than that. Lost his 
he and his wife both suffered the tragic loss of their four precious girls, a loss they would grieve for the rest of their lives. And yet Spafford knew something. He, he knew something that changed everything. Now, it did not change their troubles, not at all. It did not change their troubles. But it changed everything about them as they faced their troubles. How is it with your soul today? If you seek peace from the world, you will find, you may find, momentary pleasure. You may. Momentary, fleeting. Nothing that endures. Certainly nothing that can minister to the deep need within. But if you seek peace in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you lose your home, even if you lose your business, even if you lose all your stuff, God forbid, even if you lose your loved ones, you will find it. You will find the peace you need because the promise of peace is realized in the person of Christ. And your, your troubled hearts will find its rest in Him. So which path will you take? Will you take the worldly path or will you walk with Jesus? I pray you walk with Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this amazing assurance this blessed assurance we have in Jesus Christ who regarded our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our soul. Our souls, my soul. And I pray that that reality would not be lost on us. But that even now, even today, as you've already done, that you would just impress it upon us again and that you would help us to live by faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus from one day to the next, even as we face the many troubles of life. We bless you. And we thank you. So thankful for you. Amen.